Okay, uh, today we are going to be looking at the Bible together. We're going to carry on uh, where Dan started us off last week uh, in our new series, looking at the life of Abraham. Uh, and so we're going to be in Genesis 12. We're going to look at the second half of Genesis 12. Uh, I'm going to read uh, from verse 9 uh, through to the first couple of verses of chapter 13. But we're going to be looking at Genesis 12, verses 10 to 20. Okay, so I'm going to start reading at verse 9. Genesis 12 and verse 9. Then Abram set out and continued towards the Negev. Now there was a famine in the land and Abram went down to Egypt to live there for a while because the famine was severe. As he was about to enter Egypt, he said to his wife Sarai, I know what a beautiful woman you are. When the Egyptians see you, they will say, this is his wife. Then they will kill me but will let you live. Say you are my sister, so that I will be treated well for your sake and my life will be spared because of you. When Abraham came to Egypt, the Egyptians saw that Sarai was a very beautiful woman. And when Pharaoh's officials saw her, they praised her to Pharaoh and she was taken into his palace. He treated Abraham well for her sake and Abraham acquired sheep and cattle, male and female donkeys, male and female servants and camels. But the Lord inflicted serious diseases on Pharaoh and his household because of Abram's wife, Sarai. So Pharaoh summoned Abram. What have you done to me? Why didn't you tell me she was your wife? Why did you say she is my sister so that I took her to be my wife? Now then, here is your wife. Take her and go. Then Pharaoh gave orders about Abram to his men, and they sent him on his way with his wife and everything he had. So Abram went up from Egypt to the Negev, and his wife and everything he had, and Lot went with him. Abram had become very wealthy in livestock and in silver and gold. Okay, what's happening here? We've got these few verses in chapter 12. Uh, Perhaps we could take this passage kind of like a, a black box. We'll just look at what comes in and what comes out and just kind of work out what's going on in the middle. Well, what do we see at the start and the finish at the beginning? In chapter 12, verse 9, we see Abraham and Sarai are in the Negev. Okay. Then something happens at the end of chapter 12. And then at the beginning of chapter 13, we see uh, in chapter 13, verse 1 and 2, Abraham went up from Egypt, okay, we know he's been in Egypt, to the Negev with his wife and everything he had, and Lot went with him. Abraham had become very wealthy in livestock and in silver and in gold. So what we see, the back end of chapter 12, is we start with Abraham and Sarai in the Negev. Lot must be there somewhere too. And then when we get to the beginning of chapter 13, they're coming back from Egypt and there's Abraham and Sarai and Lot and a whole load of more sheep and cattle and goats and camels, maybe there wasn't goats actually, and servants, lots of wealth, lots of silver and gold in fact as well. So what we see is over the course of the back end of chapter 12, it looks like things have gone really well for Abraham and Sarai. What goes on in there? You would imagine something good. Perhaps some good choices, perhaps good circumstances have befallen them. They've become very wealthy. 
But as we start to look into chapter 12, verses 10 to 20, we see, well, what are the ingredients that go in there? Well, there's a famine. And we see there's some great need and hardship. There seems to be a bit of fear and some poor choices made. Actually, some downright deception and sin. And then you add into the mix Egypt and Pharaoh. It doesn't seem to make sense that Abraham and Sarai are going to come out of this in a seemingly much better position. Or they come out just having added some wealth. But the reality here is we need to see the other ingredient that's thrown into the mix. The grace and the sovereignty of God. See, actually, as we start to look at these verses, we might want to skip this. We might kind of shudder a bit and turn away and think, Abraham, what are you doing? But actually, in these verses, here we see the wonderful grace and the glorious sovereignty of God. God working out his plans and purposes by his grace in the midst of not of bad circumstances, hard circumstances, in the midst of bad choices, in the midst of sin. God working out his plans and purposes. So, let's have a look at the passage. What do we see of God's grace and sovereignty here? Well, firstly, as we start at verse 10, what we see is that the grace of God and the, his sovereign plans don't mean immunity from hardship. What do we mean? We're not immune from things being quite tough, from, from natural disasters, from things, from trials and, uh, and hardship. What do we see? Chapter 12 and verse 10. Now there was a famine in the land and Abraham went down to Egypt to live there for a while because the famine was severe. Here's the reality. Having great promises from God, living in God's plans and purposes doesn't make you immune from trial and hardship. You see, what Dan was showing us last week, God has given Abram a massive promise of great blessing. Wonderful verses in chapter 12 uh, and verse 2. I'll make you into a great nation and I will bless you. I'll make your name great and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and whoever curses you, I will curse. And all the peoples on earth will be blessed through you. Massive promises of blessing. But pretty soon, here we see, his faith is tested. There's a famine in the land. You see, we're not immune to, the, to hardships. But actually, we can get into thinking sometimes. Oh, I'm walking in God's purposes. He has plans for me. Everything's going to go right. So we step in, new beginnings, stepping into a new thing. God's preparing the way. It's going to go well. Well, don't be surprised by the bumps in the road. Don't be surprised when our faith gets tested. We can think, oh, for Abraham, surely this can't be happening now. We don't know exactly how long has passed since the first half of chapter 12, but it, this is kind of the next big event on the horizon. Surely it can't be happening now. He's on top of the world. He's received the promise. God has led him to a new land. Hardship can't come now, surely. 
But here's the reality. God doesn't promise that things won't go wrong. God won't, doesn't promise that we won't go through hard times and trials. That's why we see so often and so wonderfully in, in Hebrews chapter 12, where I'm going to turn, uh, but we see throughout scripture these wonderful encouragements and exhortations uh, to keep persevering, to keep fixing our eyes on God. What do we see? Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 1. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles and let us run with perseverance, the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus. But the writer to the Hebrews goes on in that chapter in verse 7. Ensure hardship as discipline. God is treating you as his children. For what children are not disciplined by their father? Endure hardship as discipline. God is treating you as his children. The writer of the Hebrews making it clear to us, we will face hardship. We will face trial. And even in the midst of that, God is showing us that he loves us. God is showing us that he loves us as his sons, his true children. So first thing here we see, we're not immune from hardship and trial. Let's have our eyes open and fixed on God. Because you see, it's so easy to be thrown off course. I didn't expect this to come. I, I just heard God speaking to me. I've just, just kind of set off on this new course and then, oh, I've hit this. To be hit by something. And so easy in that moment to hear the enemy's whispered lies. Where's God really? You thought you heard him. You can't really have heard God only just to be hit by this. God's not really with you. God can't save you. You need to sort this out. Perhaps other lies. You see, it just really shows that you're not wanted. It just really shows everyone else is okay except you. You're the problem. Or even the other way around. Actually, I'm trying to step out into this and look, everyone else isn't helping. It's their fault. They're not doing enough. The enemy looks to chip in. So easy to hear these lies in the face of hardship. See, Abraham here faces hardship, even in the midst of receiving these incredible promises from God. And so will we. God's grace and sovereignty don't make us immune to hardships and trials. Okay, and secondly, what do we see? The grace and sovereignty of God doesn't mean that we always get things right. You see, God's children are not immune from sin and mistakes and poor choices. What do we see as we go on through the chapter? Genesis chapter 12, what do we see Abraham, Abraham doing? Abram went down to Egypt to live there for a while because the famine was severe. And as he was about to enter Egypt, he said to his wife, Sarai, I know what a beautiful woman you are. When the Egyptians see you, they will say, this is his wife. And then they'll kill me, but let you live. Say you're my sister so that I will be treated well for your sake and my life will be spared because of you. We see Abram here. Abram's left his family and his home to go to a land that God would show him. He's followed God to an unknown destination. He's trusted him with everything. He's received this great promise. 
Surely Abraham in this moment, he's going ahead. He's trusting God. He's knowing him with him. And yet, as famine hits, as this hardship comes, do we see Abraham seeking the Lord? Lord, would you help us in this famine? What, what should we do here? What should we do? Now, Abraham appears to trust in his own plan. He doesn't appear to seek God. But they head off to Egypt. We don't know if that in itself was the wrong thing. We're not told. But what is clear that then as they're approaching Egypt, Abraham comes up with this interesting plan. Sarai, say you're my sister. Of course, if you flick ahead a few chapters on, you'll see uh, history repeats itself. This happens again. And you see, well, this is only really a half-truth. It's not, in that sense, it's not a full-on lie. Sarai is kind of his sister, yet it's clearly deception. It's clearly aimed to deceive Pharaoh and to kind of, well, it just, it's just, in that sense, it is just plainly a lie. But Abraham comes up with his own plan. Is he seeking God in this moment? Is he looking to God for the solution? What do we do in this famine? See, it's easy to end up here when facing a problem or even in the mundane day-to-day of life. I need to solve this. I should be able to work this out. May even seem like, well, common sense. Okay, if you say this, that'll keep us safe. Job done. Makes sense. Great. We'll get through this. But what Abraham's plan seems to speak of here is self-reliance. Particularly in our individualistic modern Western world, this seems like the right thing to do. I should be able to look after myself. I need to trust to myself, no one else. But the reality is this, we're not called to be self-reliant. We're not designed to be self-reliant. We're designed to rely on him, to rely on God, to seek him, to ask him, to understand, Lord, I need you. Every bre- for every breath, I'm reliant on you. The air I breathe comes from you. I'm, I'm fully reliant on you. But we see Abraham seems to trust in his own plan here. And as we'll see, trusting in our own plan, in our own strength, leads ultimately to an ugly mess. What do we see? Abraham's plan is fear, not faith. Say that you're my sister so that I will be treated well for your sake and my life will be spared because of you. Abraham's acting out of fear of the circumstances. Oh man, this famine, what are we going to do? And fear of, actually, if we go into Egypt with my beautiful wife, what's Pharaoh going to do? What are the Egyptians going to do? They're going to kill me. And the result is pressure on Sarai, manipulation. You need to say this, otherwise I'm going to be in trouble. You need to lie for me. Abraham trusting, because of you, Sarai, my life will be spared. Because of my plan, my life will be spared. Self-reliant, selfish and manipulative. So easy to drift into. In the pressure of a situation, feeling under pressure ourselves, feeling fearful to end up projecting that. 
you need to do this for me. You need to do this, otherwise I'm gonna be in a big mess. You need to do this for me. And in the midst of this, perhaps we can identify with Abraham facing trial. Oh, it's just so easy to project that pressure onto others. Or perhaps at the same time, you can identify with Sarai being pressured, manipulated, being put in a really vulnerable place. And in one sense, as he predicts, we can see Abraham is treated well. Verses 14 to 16, when he came to Egypt, the Egyptians saw that Sarai was a very beautiful woman. And when Pharaoh's officials saw her, they praised her to Pharaoh and she was taken into his palace and he treated Abram well for her sake. And Abram acquired sheep and cattle, male and female donkeys, male and female servants and camels. He's treated well in that sense, but it leads to an awful mess. Well, firstly, we see Sarai put in an incredibly vulnerable position. Going to Egypt with her husband, suddenly she's, she's asked to lie for him. And then she's taken from her husband. She's now part of Pharaoh's harem, separated from her husband, powerless, without a voice in that culture and in that society, having to go through with Abraham's plan to keep him safe. And at the same time, ultimately, Abraham now, I suppose, is rich. But... Now he's kind of single in a foreign land. This isn't the plan. In a sense, his plan has worked. He's been treated well because of Sarai, but this is not right. This is the family that God has chosen to become a great nation in the land God has led them to. Now they're separated in a foreign land. Trusting in our own plans, in our own strength, just leads to an ugly mess. We need God. But this is the second thing we see. God's grace and sovereignty don't mean we're immune from making bad and sinful choices. We see that Abraham, Abraham makes some bad choices here. But thirdly and wonderfully, ultimately, we see the grace of God and his sovereign plans and purposes are bigger than any sin and any hardship. God's sovereign plans are not thwarted. What he has said, he will do. God's grace is big enough. And we see in verse 17 onwards, God's grace breaks into this situation. What do we see? The Lord inflicted serious diseases on Pharaoh and his household because of Abraham's wife, Sarai. So Pharaoh summoned Abraham. What have you done to me? He said, why didn't you tell me she was your wife? Why didn't you say she is your sister? so that I took her to be my wife. Now then, here is your wife, take her and go. And Pharaoh gave orders that, about Abraham to his men, so they sent him away with his wife and everything he had. We see God's grace break in. And what do we see? Well, firstly, we see God's grace can come by very strange means. God's grace and God's plans being worked out here come through a very strange way through affliction to Pharaoh and his household. Pharaoh and his household are struck by nasty diseases. And this gets Pharaoh's attention. This is how God gets Pharaoh's attention. And then, in a sense, God's grace is brought to Abraham and Sarai through Pharaoh, 
God's grace has worked out. Pharaoh, having discovered what Abraham has done, what does he do? What we can imagine doing, you think, well, I'm going to kill him. I'm going to pay him back. I'm going to lock him up. I'm going to do, no, Pharaoh sends them away. Take all that you've got and go. The grace of God being worked out through very odd means. Unexpected. We see the truth being worked out that God works in all things for the good of those who love him. Important for us to remember in the midst of this COVID pandemic, do we see COVID just as this evil imposter, the enemy scheme that's just destroying everything? Or in the midst of it all, is God working by his grace? Is he nudging people, shaking people, waking them up, rescuing people even in this time? Perhaps in ways we don't fully understand and perhaps can't see clearly. But God's grace comes in all sorts of ways. And also we see God in his grace protects the vulnerable. There's grace here for Sarai in her vulnerable position. We see through this story, Abrams, he's thinking of himself. Pharaoh, he's thinking of himself. Neither of them are thinking of the good of Sarai, but God sees Sarai. And we see God rescue Sarai from the position Abraham has put her in. Let's remember God sees the vulnerable. God sees the poor and the powerless and he cares. Again, at this time, God sees those in the greatest need. God sees those who are powerless and vulnerable and he cares. And finally, God's grace covers over sin. God's grace works it out despite Abraham's sin. You see, we could look again wrongly. Look back at that black box, Abraham and Sarai in the Negev. Well, it finished with Abraham and Sarai in the Negev with lots of wealth. All's well that ends well. Abraham must have done okay, surely. No. The end justifies the means somehow. We can so easily try and justify our actions. Well, it worked out, didn't it? I can't have done it too badly. No, let's recognise Abraham's sin. And let's recognise our own sin. Easy to think, well, does it not matter then? There's grace, God sorts it out, doesn't matter. We find ourselves stepping into what Paul was challenging in Romans chapter 6. And verse 1 and 2, Romans 6, verse 1 and 2, challenging that kind of attitude. Oh, it doesn't matter because there's grace. What should we say then? Should we go on sinning so that grace may increase? By no means. We are those who have died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? No, by no means. We recognise Abraham's sin, we recognise our own sin, but we recognise and glory in and delight in the grace and mercy of God that we see here. Abraham's messed up. Abraham caves into the fear, uh, into fear and selfishly pressure, pressures and manipulates Sarai into a highly vulnerable situation for his own sake. And yet God saves them. What grace, what love. 1 John 3 verse 1, see what great love the Lord has lavished on us that we should be called children of God. What mercy, what grace we find in him. See here, even here, that kind of picture of salvation 
messed up, they're in a mess, helpless, but God rescues them. God's grace is big enough and his sovereign plan cannot be thwarted. So what do we do? What do we do with this? What do we do with these verses that, as I said, in some ways, we might just want to skip over what on earth is going on here. Abraham, what are you doing here? But let's see the grace of God and his sovereign plan being worked out. God has chosen these two. God is at work in these two and his plans are being worked out. What he says he will do and by his grace, he works it out. Let's be encouraged. God is at work for us. I suggest let's resolve again to trust him, to persevere, to stand firm, to not be thrown off by hardship, but to recognise God, you're at work in all things for the good of those who love you. You are carrying your plans and purposes on. Look, God, you, I see how you even worked it out here in this situation. Perhaps in there, there's a call to repent. Perhaps reflecting back on the situation Sarah was put in, perhaps there's a call to forgive or to recognise pain and hurt that's been caused. But ultimately, let's lift our eyes, lift our eyes in thankfulness. Shall we remember this? What great love the Lord has lavished on us that we may be called children of God. Look at the grace of God. Look at how wonderful his plans and purposes are and he will see it through. What he said he will do. His grace is big enough. Amen.